Let's, um, let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Matt's passing out my handout. Father, we're grateful for um, the Lord's Day. We're thankful for your loving kindness, your faithfulness unto us, your people. Um, we're thankful for the way that you um, keep your promises um, to us through the centuries and down to today. And we're grateful for your spirit, which dwells with us, and for the way that he unites us and brings us into communion with your Son. Now, Father, this morning we pray that you would um, certainly bless our worship um, as we um, gather in about an hour um, to come into your presence. We pray also that you uh, would be with us now as we um, prepare for worship um, in our Sunday school hour. We pray for you to grant us wisdom as we consider um, the teaching of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Um, we are in... Um, uh, chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith today. We um, made a start of that um, several weeks ago. Um, we're off last week for spring break, or rather for time change, um, and uh, we're back again today. So I'm going to begin, again, as I did two weeks ago, just by reading through um, the text of this chapter so you can have it in front of you in your mind, and we'll pick up in, a cha- in paragraph 4, where we left off two weeks ago. Um, but I want to read it all. Um, for us so that we have it before us. So that the chapter on God's eternal decree begins this way. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And that great statement of God's um, total sovereignty. Um, but also with these three Um, fences or or hedges um, about that and what that means for us. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Second paragraph. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. God ordains what he ordains because of his own desire and will and choice, not because of what he uh, may foresee as being future. By the decree of God, this is paragraph 3, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. So God's sovereignty has application in this way, that there are some whom he has predestinated for life everlasting, and others he has foreordained to everlasting death. Paragraph 4. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained, notice the use of those two terms, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. It is God who has fixed uh, these groups of people, um, even their number, They cannot be changed by human will or activity. Paragraph 5. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, 
according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ. That in Christ is important there. God uh, chooses um, his elect in his chosen one, in uh, Christ, the anointed one. Hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Paragraph 6, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. So God not only ordains um, those who are to be uh, receive eternal life, he also ordains all the means by which they receive that eternal life. Wherefore they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Paragraph 7. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them, pass by and to ordain them, to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Notice the parallel there from uh, paragraph 5. The praise of his glorious justice in contrast to the praise of his glorious grace. Paragraph 8, the last paragraph in this chapter. The doctrine of this high mystery, high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. The payoff of all this should be assurance, confidence that God is with us, that he will deliver us. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. All right, just want to put that in front of you as we continue to move through this chapter. Um, we'll begin this morning in paragraph four. Um, these angels and men, um, this is the angels and men who have been predestinated or foreordained either to death or life, life or death, thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. This is a pretty straightforward uh, paragraph, and essentially what the um, writers of the standards are saying is that, um, that the number of elect, the number of those who will be um, damned to everlasting death, 
um, is fixed. It is um, unchangeable by human effort or will. Um, God um, has done this. Um, it cannot be um, affected um, by us in some fundamental way. Um, Van Dixhorn does make this comment. This is Chad Van Dixhorn, um, who I've referenced. His book, Confessing the Faith, is wonderful. Um, it may appear that even these brief statements are leaning towards one side of the story, giving more emphasis to election than reprobation. This is correct. Now, that is correct as you read this chapter. There's more emphasis, much more emphasis, given on um, election than reprobation, reprobation being those who are um, to be condemned. The Westminster Assembly selected passages of Scripture to support the theology of these statements, and the emphasis of these passages is on the assurance that God's plan gives to God's people, both John 13, 18 and 2 Timothy 2, 19, um, talk about the Lord knowing his own, that he knows who he has chosen. Jesus says that at the Last Supper. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, um, Paul says the Lord knows his own. They are sealed to him. Um, the emphasis is on God's knowledge of his elect. However, the, this selection of the verses and this emphasis on God's activity in election um, receiving more emphasis than his activity in reprobation. Um, Van Dixhorn says, these are not arbitrary things. This is not arbitrary weight. These verses reflect the dominant emphasis of Scripture itself, which celebrates the selection of God's own people more than his passing by a rebel people whom he does not plan to save. The main point in this section, following a main point of the Bible itself, is that God never sets his love on someone only to abandon him or her later. Our salvation is secure. And indeed, that is, I think, the main takeaway from this um, brief paragraph, is that God, um, if he has placed you in his people, if he has given you um, faith and all of these things, if he has sealed you to Christ, um, then you can be confident that he will be uh, with you forever, um, that he um, will not let you go. Um, that is the main application of this uh, paragraph, and indeed, in many ways, the main application of this entire section um, is the way in which we can be confident um, in the Lord's uh, calling of us um, as those who belong to Christ. Any thoughts or questions about that paragraph before we move on? Yes, ma'am. Sarah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so Sarah's asking about the angels. Uh, why are they mentioned here? What is that all about? Um, I would just say that it, it appears clear from the scripture. We don't believe that angels um, are made in God's image, of course, in the way that human beings are. Um, and yet it, it is clear that angels will both be either eternally kept for salvation. I wouldn't necessarily say saved because um, the, the angels that are in heaven, um, as far as we are aware, have never sinned. They're sinless um, in that way. Uh, but they are kept unto salvation uh, for eternity. And some angels, because of their sin, because of their fall, their rebellion, um, Satan being the chief example of that, and then um, those who, who, who went with him, who fell with him, are um, we're told that they are 
judged in the end. In Revelation 20 and 21 talks about um, not only men being judged, but also Satan and his angels um, being judged by the Lord. So I, th I think that's, that's why they're mentioned here, that although angels are not um, human beings, they're not um, uh, you know, made in God's image, the same kind of um, capacities that we have. Um, yet, there is a, they're not treated the same way the animal kingdom is treated, right? The animal kingdom, there's no sense of there being a discrete group that's kept for salvation and another group that's judged everlastingly. Um, but with angels, there is that teaching in the scripture um, that, that some, some will be in God's presence forever and some will be cast into the lake of fire. Um, so I, I, that's my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think what is does Hebrew now? Does Hebrews talk about that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me let me research that real quick. Go to main turn my Bible. Um The elect angels. I'm not sure. I yeah, I thought maybe Hebrews 12 used that. Innumerable angels and festival gathering um, is the phrase that's... Yeah, ring a bell for somebody, elect angels. That well, I was just thinking of where uh, in Matthew they talk about elders preparing for a meal. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, obviously um, the judgment that God, and we see this more clearly in God, obviously has ordained that some angels would rebel and therefore be judged by him everlastingly. And so we, there you go. Well done. First Timothy 5.21, elect angels. Yeah. Anything else from that brief paragraph there before we move on? Yeah, Jeremy. Um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly, I mean, so you're saying, tell me whether God has multiple decrees, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and there's, as you sure you know, there's a chapter specifically on providence that's coming up um, shortly. Um, 
here certainly the emphasis is on election and reprobation. Um, and we would see, I think as we'll see in the logic of this chapter that, that God um, works out his providence in order to bring about these different ends, either election or reprobation in the life of hum human beings, the lives of human beings. Um, it, it is interesting and important to say that this chapter's title is of God's eternal decree, singular, um, not plural. Um, and so I think we would want, we want to say, I mean, this is you know, just a, th a thing to talk about theologically, but we, I think we'd want to see that there's one, want to say that there's one decree of God um, that has all these different manifestations and implications throughout time. Um, including his ordaining, you know, things in terms of providence, but also the way that he works out and has set apart some for election, some for damnation. Um, I'm not sure if I'm touching on what you what you're asking. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm comfortable with saying that we believe in double predestination in that sense. Um, it depends what you mean by that, but we certainly believe that God, as the divines will say in a little bit, not only pass by those who are um, the reprobate, but he also ordains um, them to wrath, um, and that God ordains whatsoever shall come to pass, that God is sovereign. Um, certainly over both the elect and the condemned. Um, so I, I, I'm totally comfortable with that personally. I mean, I, and I think the standards certainly teach that. Yes, sir. Well, I think they're, yeah, I think they're trying to make a distinction here. And it, this is what Van Dixwin is saying here um, in this quote as well, I think, which is that, um, God, certainly the, the emphasis um, in the, the standards and the emphasis on the scriptures is on God's activity um, towards his elect. Um, and that, I mean, you do have a, you know, a couple, in, you know, examples in scripture, the most prominent being Pharaoh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? He's doing that actively, clearly. Um, but there's much more emphasis on the scriptures that God is intervening to save, to soften, to deliver um, those upon whom he has set his affection than that he is hardening um, those who have rebelled against him. So I think that's, that's the distinction that's being made there, that they are trying to say, now God is sovereign over everything, right? That, that's the, the umbrella thing that's over all of it. God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, including the rebellion of those who rebel him against him. Um, not without, you know, not making him the author of sin, not doing violence to their will, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but there is in the scriptures, there is in our system of theology, I think, um, a more, much stronger emphasis placed on God's um, intervention, God's moving in space and time by his spirit into the lives of those who he's going to redeem um, in a way that is not true in the same in the same particular way that he does with those who are damned and and so passing by um, is one of the ways we can talk about um, what God does to those who 
remain in their sin, that he passes them by. We also, as the divine state, want to say that God ordains them to wrath um, and to these, you know, to the punishment of their sins. So I, I don't know if that helps, but I do think they're trying to make that, they are trying to make a differentiation. It's a subtle one. They're not saying that God isn't sovereign over those who are not elect, um, but they are saying that he is active in, by his spirit um, in um, the lives of those who belong to him in a way that he's not for those who aren't. Yes, Donna, then Jeremy. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pa- pass. You told me the word Passover. The yeah. yeah, the angel of death passes over. Yeah, obviously there. What's happening is that he's that that passing over is a um, is a benefit, right, to those who are passed over, um, because God is coming in judgment, um, and and the angel of death is coming. So yes, it is. You're right. It's an interesting contrast. And and that in that scenario, they're being passed over for their salvation, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy. So if, if I'm thinking of like technology and talk about the universe and God like moving people, like if they're like the one tribal group, like how the most politically correct or like moves were to explore and control not the not the way that they like Yeah, only. I mean, they they use that word that that the voc- vocation is a word that is used um, by. Let's see, in the last um, paragraph in paragraph eight, um, that the elect would have the certainty of their effectual vocation, which is you know Latin word for calling, right? Um, to be called. So yeah, I think that word, God calls His elect in the way that He does not call the reprobate. I think that's fair to say. That's a, that's a fair a fair use of language, I think. All right, let me let me move into paragraph five here. I think we'll see some of what we're describing in terms of the emphasis um, in the scriptures in our theology, God's initiation, God's taking action towards His elect. Paragraph five: Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life. Again, that word predestinated instead of foreordained that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, so before time itself, before creation, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, again, not purposes, but purpose, eternal and unchangeable, immutable basically means unchangeable or unchanging, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, that word secret counsel is important, right? Because when we talk about these things in time and space, we have to acknowledge that um, the, the elect are known to God alone um, with complete certainty. Um, we believe that, that the Spirit um, working in us um, can give us assurance about our own election. Um, 
and there are different ways that he does that through our obedience, through the sacraments, through faith, um, through all you know repentance, those kinds of things. Um, but in terms of the the knowledge of who is elect, um, God has made that decision secretly, his secret own secret counsel. And he's done it because he wants to, because he delights to save a people for himself. Um, there's nothing that God um, rejoices in more than um, his um, saving um, of his people. We can think about those parables that Jesus tells about the um, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to search for the one. And when he comes home with him on his shoulders, he uh, rejoices. He throws a, a party, tells his friends to come and rejoice with him because he has found the lost sheep, um, which is a fascinating parable because that's not how shepherds actually are. Um, it's supposed to give us a picture into what God is like. Um, the good pleasure of his will is manifested in no other way so much as the saving of those whom he loves from their sin and death. Um, According to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ. And that, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that were chosen not in some sort of abstract, generic way um, by God and set apart for everlasting life. Um, we are chosen in Christ, um, union with Christ. That's what is being described here. We're united to Jesus, um, God. Um, there's no other way we might be saved other than through um, um, are being joined um, to Jesus, joined to the one who is God's chosen one, um, as he says um, at his baptism um, and at his transfiguration. Um, we're united in him into the elect one, we might say. Hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. Why? Out of his mere free, his mere free grace and love. This is why God chooses us. He chooses us because he chooses us. He loves us because he loves us. Um, there's no uh, way to get behind that, to, to prove why it is that the Lord might love one and not another. Um, he does it because of his mere free grace and love. He loves us because he loves us. Without any foresight of faith or good works, if God didn't choose you um, because he saw that you would have faith or that you would obey him or that you would please him um, with the things that you do. It's not why God chose you. Um, it's not because of your perseverance or perseverance in either of them um, or in any other thing in the creature. It's, it's not in anything um, that um, n in you th that justifies God's decision um, to make you part of his elect. And you know, should remind us of um, Moses speaking to the people of Israel, um, saying that the Lord did not choose them because they were strong, because they were uh, many in number. Um, he chose them because he loved them, um, because he had set his affection upon them. None of these things are conditions or causes moving him that is God thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, it is... Um, not by works, but by grace that we're saved, so that none should boast, as Paul says. Van Dixhorn says, this counsel is secret. We cannot penetrate the sovereign pleasure of God in making his decisions, but we trust that it is good. God does choose each one of us, not in a mass, but individually, personally, but God chose all of us 
as his children in Christ. He is the chosen one of God. Christ is the one upon whom the Father has eternally set his affection and his love, right? He is the only begotten Son of the Father. And it is because um, God loves Jesus um, that we're brought into that love, and his love um, is given to us, as Jesus says to the disciples in John 17, um, as um, the Father has, has loved me, he has also loved you. In the very same way that you've loved me, he says to the Father, you have loved uh, my disciples. God chose all of us as his children in Christ. He is the chosen one of God, the foreordained one, and we are saved as we are united to him. All of this flows out of God's sheer free grace, quote unquote, right? Grace that is not under compulsion. There's no leverage that we have. It's freely given. A grace which is tinged, no saturated with his love. Of course, the Lord sees all things, yes. But he did not peer into the future in order to find sparks of faith that he could fan into flame, right? It's not because we were a teeny tiny bit better than uh, one who is not elect that God chose us. He said, well, I can work with this person. No, that's not it at all. That's, that's not how it works. Um, to think that we can do something that will make God then choose us is to construct a facade in the hope that God will add a real structure behind it. He did not predestine us to salvation because he predicted our good works or knew we would persevere in the Christian life. There is nothing in us that motivated his choice. He set no conditions which he needed to foresee before he would choose us. All such notions need to be deconstructed before we can advance in the school of grace. There was no human cause that set God in motion toward our salvation. This is why paragraph 8 says um, that this doctrine of election should afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, right? All praise to God, all reverence to God, all admiration to God. And for those of us who belong to him, it should lead to humility, right? There's nothing that we've done that has made God choose us. Diligence responding with faithfulness to God's electing call, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Um, this should console us. It's good news, actually, um, that God loves us because he loves us, uh, not because of our inherent worth or, or some kind of thing that we can do or he saw that we would do. Um, it's actually consoling, comforting that the Lord loves us uh, merely because he has set his affection upon us. Any thoughts about that paragraph or questions? Sam? Good out of 
doing all of the same thing, but not do what you're saying definitely. I'm not elected out of my own, but purely out of God's goodness and his authority that that I'm in heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's where the puppetry of his goodness actually frees me from mm-hmm. being yeah. God's <coughs> yeah. No, that's right. I, and that's a good point. In terms of the enslavement of the will, um, we do believe, um, and you see this in the chapter on free will and also the chapter on sin, um, that human beings, be in their depravity, in their fall with Adam, are enslaved by sin. Um, such that they cannot choose good. Um, we are puppets in that sense, apart from God's um, intervening grace, um, that, that we, are, we are under the domain of sin, and, and so there's no capacity within us um, to choose goodness. Um, that's, yeah, that's a good point. And the Lord actually sets us free from that slavery, and that's what um, being redeemed means, being set free to choose righteousness. Yeah, James. Yeah. Um, knowing that you are um, secure in in God's choice, <laughs> um, I uh, that that has been really important to me in reconciling some of these things. Yeah. Right. He he assigned a paper where he asked, uh, like, the prompt, "What does this theology support godly living?" Yeah. Like, a godly life. Right. Um, which I thought was a really wise prompt um, to then um, ask the students to reckon with this not from an abstract um, theological intellectual. Right, and it should. And I think it yeah, does. yeah, yeah. And where where it doesn't, it's our failure to grasp it and comprehend it and live out of that. But yeah, that it should produce that kind of a holy living, a kind of holy admiration of the Lord, and, um, a right kind of motivation for obedience um, and consolation, like you're saying. 
Yeah, I love that um, that payoff that the standards give us. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah. I, w I would say our election is a foundation for the good works that we do, for our obedience. I think we do need to be careful um, to hold these things in tension. Um, in the chapter on saving faith, the divines will say that one of the things that saving faith does is tremble at the threatenings of the scriptures. <clears throat> and we should. We should. One of the reasons we should obey God and flee sin and embrace repentance is because we don't want to come under the judgment of God. Um, we should tremble at the threatenings. Um, but certainly, our our election, our confidence about God having delivered us, is the foundation that we can do those things. Um, we can we can tremble at the threatenings in a real way without being overwhelmed, without being petrified. Um, but but responding with godly fear and reverence, I would say. <coughs> hmm? Yes. Yeah, I, th I believe that one of the means by which the Lord will cause the perseverance of his saints is the warnings that he gives us in the scriptures and through pastors and through preaching and by the Spirit working in our hearts to not fall away, to to not fall under the judgment of God, um, to turn from our sin, because God judges um, those who don't repent. So yes, I, I think absolutely. The, the threatenings, the warnings, are one of the means by which God saves us. God makes us to persevere. <clears throat> we should take them seriously. Um, Kathina, do you have a comment or question? Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think an analogy is, it's not perfect, but it, you know, it helps some, is thinking about children. And, you know, we, children who know they're loved unconditionally by their parents respond with, out of that, that's kind of secure attachment. 
right, that they have from their parents with obedience. It just kind of naturally happens, not perfectly, of course. Nobody loves their kids perfectly in the way that God loves us. Um, but, but when our kids know that they're loved, know that they belong to us, um, it does create in them a kind of proper motivation for obedience and faithfulness, and um, much more so even with God and us. Yes, ma'am, Tama. Sure. Yeah, and that and that distinction, not trembling at the threatenings of the scriptures, is one of the things that really fundamentally distinguishes those who are not elect. Um, they don't tremble, right? Um, <laughs> Noah builds the ark, and the people don't tremble about the judgment that was being foreordained or forewarned, um, predicted um, by Noah and preached by him. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we, we want to tremble at the, th- at the threatenings. It is important. All right, let me, let me turn to um, paragraph six, and we'll at least get into this in a few, or a few minutes before we close today. Um, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained, foreordained rather, all the means thereunto. Um, it's interesting, the different language here, it's not predestinated, it's that God has appointed the elect. Um, but the, the main point being made here um, is that by the same eternal and most free purpose that he predestinated the elect, he also foreordained the means that they would be uh, saved by. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't just reach out in some... Um, uh, way that's not connected to time and space and history um, and pluck us out and save us, but he actually ordains means um, by which we will be um, saved for glory, will be redeemed. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. Right? Christ, the second Adam, uh, brings them out of that bondage, out of that slavery, the bondage of the will, to use Uh, Luther's phrase, uh, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are bought with the price, are set free uh, from the slavery of sin, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the one who joins us to Jesus. The Spirit is the one who grants us faith in God's Son by his Spirit working in due season. Are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith, that is the power of the Holy Spirit, kept in Christ by the Spirit, by the Spirit's power, through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Van Dixhorn, I think, rightly comments here. He says, when we talk, when we think of election, we must talk of more than eternal life. We also need to discuss the way to life because we shall not reach the end of our journey any way we please. We are chosen and predestined, Paul says, but this election will be tethered to a life of good works. 
and increasing holiness within the context of our life in the family of God. God decides to save and sanctify us, but without suffering and learning, not without preaching and prayer, and I would add, and sacrament, word, prayer, sacrament, right? The means of grace. Um, so the thing to see here, I think, is, is this reality that God, uh, I mean, to relate to what um, Sam was saying earlier about everything that comes from the Lord is good because he is good. Um, and that's particularly true in a special way for those um, who are elect in, in Christ. Um, he ordains not only the ultimate end, our salvation, um, but he ordains the way of life that leads to salvation. Um, he ordains um, the church and he gives it to us as a vessel of salvation. He ordains our faith and what that faith looks like, the way that it expresses itself in repentance and obedience, um, the way that it expresses itself in uh, reading the scriptures and learning um, of um, the God's character and works, um, listening to preaching, um, learning to grow in the school of prayer, receiving um, baptism and the Lord's Supper as means by which God seals us to himself. All of these things are part of what it means to be the part of the elect of God is that he has set apart a, a, a certain kind of way of life for us that leads to salvation. He is, he's not only elect and sovereign over the, the end result, but over all the means by which he brings us to that end result. And, and certainly there will be, you know, there's places where our path is different from my path is different from yours, et cetera, et cetera. But, but basically it's the same path for everybody. Um, uh, we all we all go through um, this this path together, and that's something I think that is really important to, to think about and comprehend. Hey, Eric. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Eric's saying that there is a, um, a responsibility in the way the word the that term elect is used in the scriptures. It's used in such a way that those who are elect have a responsibility to live in a certain kind of way, to respond to their election. And absolutely, that's, that's definitely true. Um, our election is not only so that we might be saved, but so that we would be um, 
representatives of Christ in the world, that we would be viceroys over creation, um, that we might uh, join in um, with the great projects in uh, Genesis 1 to take dominion and fill the earth, um, be fruitful, multiply, and in Matthew 28 to disciple the nations and teach teach them what Jesus has commanded. Yes, one last comment from James and we'll wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to choose between, I want them both, you know. Um, <laughs> so, I, and I think the Bible clearly uses it, the, that term salvation in, in a fluid kind of way, in a way that certainly refers to the Lord saving us now. But that salvation that we experience, that union that we experience with Christ is something that will only be fully manifested and revealed um, on the last day. Um, it'll be made known. Um, publicly to us and to the world um, that we belong to him. So we, um, we can say, I'm saved, present tense, but we also can say, I'm trusting that the Lord will save me, future tense, um, on the last day in the, in the great judgment. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would, I would want to use those terms both, both ways. Yeah. All right, we got to wrap up. Um, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for um, this doctrine of election, thankful for your eternal decree. Uh, We pray that indeed, as we talk about these things, Father, they would not merely remain abstract, um, uh, philosophical or theological uh, points that we, you know, think about or contemplate um, apart from our own lives, but but these truths, rather, Father, would sink into our hearts, would affect the way that we live, affect the way that we Uh, walk in faith and obedience before you. Indeed, that they would lead us, Father, the truth of the scriptures that we're talking about here, um, to a deeper reverence and praise for you, to a deeper humility and diligence and um, consolation for us, Father, um, that we uh, would be confident that we indeed um, have received this vocation, this calling of being um, united um, to the one um, who is himself the chosen one of God your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us these things, Father, by your mercy and grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.